Today on the Women Mind the Water podcast, I'm speaking with Paulita Bennett-Martin. Paulita is a multidimensional ocean activist who works in the area of advocacy, research, and community building. She is personally aware of the value of storytelling after managing oral history projects. She currently serves on the board of Arts Southeast, is the founder of Whale Week Savannah, and is the new federal policy manager for Oceana. The Women Mind the Water podcast engages artists in conversation about their work and explores their connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. I am pleased today to welcome Paulita Bennett-Martin to the Women Mind the Water Artivist Series podcast. Paulita is a multidimensional ocean activist who has managed conservation research and campaigns in the Caribbean and the Southern U.S. She's a proud Belizean American who works to ensure that where the ocean is involved, every voice is heard. Paulita fervently believes that the ocean unites us all. She works on national ocean plastics policy for the ocean policy and conservation nonprofit known as Oceana. Paulita also serves on the board of Arts Southeast, a nonprofit whose mission is to make Savannah, Georgia, a destination for art and culture. She's a founder of Whale Week Savannah, a grassroots effort to educate residents to the plight of the North Atlantic right whale. The North Atlantic right whale is Georgia's state marine mammal. Paulita is clearly an activist who is a supporter of the arts. She believes that art plays a significant role in connecting us with our personal selves, as well as fostering a deeper understanding of each other. Welcome, Paulita. Thank you for joining me on the Women Mind the Water podcast. I am looking forward to hearing more about your background and how you, as an activist, incorporates art in your work. I'm going to say in advance that the breadth of your work and the brevity of this podcast is going to cause me to make some big leaps in my questioning. I want to make the most of your experience to inform listeners to the powerful connection between activism and art. Let me start by asking you to compare the ocean and the cultural traditions between Belize, Georgia, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. What are some of the elements that unite them, and how do they differ? Wow. Thank you, Pam. So exciting to be here talking to you. Um, I would definitely say the first thing that comes to mind when you name those, those areas is the ocean. It's one of the things that is ever present through Belize. You're never far from the ocean. Um, you're never far from thinking about, you know, the beauty of the ocean, the blue that resonates across the skies. Similarly in coastal Georgia, where I am right now, um, Everyone's always, you know, looking forward to an afternoon stroll, sunset, or swim in the ocean, or fishing off of our coast. Um, And then similarly to the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, you know, on any given day, you're probably going to spend a few minutes swimming across a beautiful reef, um, taking in the sights of the parrotfish and, um, you know, seeing the rolling hills that just kind of spill down into the beautiful Caribbean water. Well, you clearly have a passion for the ocean and in conservation work. 
Would I also be correct in saying that you were concerned about social justice issues that they pertain to the environment? Absolutely, 100% accurate. I think that um, my passion, my, my common thread through my life is the ocean. But I think that the ocean ha- and, and the health and benefit of the ocean has a lot of connection and implication to social justice and vice versa. Uh, what's happening within our, our communities here on land often impacts those beautiful resources that I'm so in love with within the ocean. So I think, I think it's interesting because I've seen this kind of popular um, uh, piece that uh, an artist did that just says, you know, environmental justice is social justice. Um, we are very connected to our resources within, within the ocean or within any uh, area of the planet, nature as a whole, right? It's not separate from us. It's part of us. Um, And so I do think that social justice is always in my mind. I know you've managed an oral history project for the OGG Riverkeeper. Tell me a little bit about this project. Absolutely. Okay. So the OGG Riverkeeper is one of the riverkeepers from the um, Savannah area. It actually covers the, the watershed, most of the watershed in Savannah is Ogeechee, not Savannah. The Savannah River uh, watershed is from a very small slice of the city and goes into South Carolina, whereas Ogeechee covers most of Savannah and then goes south. Um, there was a large-scale fish kill from contaminants in the water um, and there was a lawsuit that was filed by the Ogeechee Riverkeeper years ago, before I even came into the role of uh, research coordinator there. And that those funds, part of those funds were to be used to collect and, and preserve uh, stories from that waterfront area, from community, from stakeholders, from the community, from the people that use the water. And so I came in and conducted interviews with people that, you know, that range from fishermen to restaurant owners to historians who live um, and work on the Ogeechee River or within the watershed. And so um, a lot of that was focused on working waterfronts, people that do work the water, but there were other people involved in those conversations too. Um, And that project went on to be housed at the Georgia Southern University. So there is an audio um, oral history archive there at the university and the Ogeechee River uh, Keeper oral history project is part of their um, archives. So really incredible. It was, it was a, a awesome thing to be a part of because I've only been in Savannah for five and a half years. So to jump into a project like that so quickly, that was in my first two years here. I got to learn so much dense history about Savannah, about Richmond Hill, Pooler, um, about the islands like Tybee. I learned about native plants um, and native trees. I learned about fishing history and got to kind of pick up on which fish were plentiful back in the day versus now, not even being able to fish those fish because they've been depleted so heavily. So it really gave me this historical environmental understanding of where I was at. Um, But I also got to pick up on 
um, sort of food ways and, and, and that part of the culture that is kind of different to me. I'm always thinking of things through the ocean and through the fish and through the reef. But then I started to also learn about like how people would cook like redfish um, and, and what plants they would, you know, be harvesting to cook with and the teas that they make and stuff like that. So that was an incredible project. That's really the beauty of storytelling, and um, I, that's one of the reasons I love this podcast is because I get to talk to so many interesting women involved in so many interesting projects, so I'm really glad to hear that. Um, so was your work with the Ogichi Riverkeeper Project where your interest in storytelling began, or did it enhance it? I think it enhanced it. I think I started, I wrote plays when I was a little kid. Um, I was always into hearing stories and giving stories. Um, and so I think storytelling is just part of who I am. And I, I almost wonder if most people aren't a storyteller in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, yeah, so I would say it's always been part of me. But the Ogeechee Riverkeeper Project, Oral History Project, definitely made it more vibrant. Um, and then before that, I would say my work in the Virgin Islands, working on the lionfish research, doing a lot of participatory style research where we spent long amounts of time with the local fishermen, learning what they did, maybe actually doing some of the things like helping them at their fish stalls and, and being a part of their world and hearing, listening and giving time to hear their stories made our research that much more robust. It wasn't just numbers and something that we could punch into an analysis for the data to shoot out of. We actually got to know the stories that made us understand why things were the way they were. Okay. I'd like to learn more about Oceana and your work with the nonprofit. How did you come to work for the organization and what exactly do you do with Oceana? Yeah. Okay. So I actually got my first start with Oceana way back in like 20, uh, 2015 or 2014 in Belize doing research on plastics. And the thread here with the storytelling is that I was, do I was doing research on plastics looking at quantitative data, collecting data along beaches and, and, you know, what was washing up from the ocean. Through that, I started to, to learn more from actually the conversations I was having between collecting data with locals. And then the locals were interested in what I was doing, so they would get involved and help participate in collecting the data too. Well, did the research, a summer research intern with Oceana, and then when I was, uh, came back to the States, I took a job here on the coast of Georgia, and Oceana found out that I took a job in Georgia, and they wanted to place somebody in Georgia. And so, lo and behold, I wound up back with Oceana uh, three and a half years ago um, in April, I think, April, yeah. And, um, and I started out as a... Uh, campaign organizer, mostly focused on our offshore drilling and energy campaign, then became field representative, focusing on our offshore drilling and energy, our responsible fishing work, 
Um, and also, and that includes like sharks and whale campaigns. And I started working a little bit on diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, principles within our organization then. And then about two months ago, I wound up moving into the role of the federal policy manager. So now I spend most of my time focused on ocean conservation policy on ocean plastics. So I am focused on our campaign is to reduce the amount of single-use plastics that are being made and used in the United States. So let me double back on uh, our discussion of storytelling. Can you give an example of how storytelling is infected, uh, infected? effective in your ocean advocacy work with Oceana and plastic. Oh gosh. Yes, of course. Well, I don't, I don't even know that we think of it as storytelling, but it absolutely is. I, when, when we're going in to work on getting a bill passed or getting a bill written, right. You have to find champions who are our representatives who were voted into office to represent us who care about these issues. And the only way that, People care about this issues is if they had a personal experience with it, that they know something about the issue, right? And if it wasn't their personal experience, nine times out of 10, it's somebody else's personal experience that actually grabs them. So you can come in with the scientific background, which is important. All of Oceana's campaigns are scientifically based. We have a scientist on each campaign. However, you have to be able to take that information and tell a story with it not just yes you know uh the the 10 most prevalent uh single-use plastics or or plastic items cleaned up from beaches etc are single-use plastics you have to be able to explain that you know organizations have been collecting um litter from beaches and, and waterways across our planet for the last decade and since 2017 that that has become predominantly single-use plastics, the top 10 items that are cleaned up every year by thousands of people across our planet are things like forks and knives and straws and bags. They're single-use plastic items, things that we don't need. They're made to use one time, and then they wind up in our nature, in our waterways for a lifetime. So that's the story part, right? The data is in there. It's fact. It's factual. It's scientists that are finding this information out for us. But then, how do you take that and transform it to something that actually influences somebody that like resonates with them, right? And so, I use storytelling all the time, um, scientifically um, informed, fact-based storytelling. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. And I was fascinated to learn that the North Atlantic right whale is Georgia's state marine mammal. I wasn't aware that the North Atlantic right whale was even found in the waters off Georgia. (laughs) And then when I did a little more research, I was surprised to find out that Maine, where I live, doesn't claim any marine animal uh, for the state. However, the North Atlantic right whale is a contentious subject in Maine because the lobstering industry is at odds with conservation groups over federal let's try that again, federal regulations established to protect the highly endangered whale. Can you tell us about the climate in Georgia regarding the North Atlantic right whale? 
Yeah. People are upset. They want, okay. So North Atlantic right whales have been Georgia's official state marine mammal since I think April of 1985. Wow. Yeah. The Georgia General Assembly unanimously voted to make this whale our state marine mammal because there was this incredible discovery back in the early 80s um, where they found a calf, a dead cat neonate off of one of the barrier islands here in Georgia, Little St. Simons Island. Once that discovery was made, scientists from the Northeast came down and said, well, we've got to figure out what's going on. We didn't even know these whales were, like, what's happening? Right. So they went up, they got aerial footage. Um, Really interestingly, they went up with volunteer pilots from Delta, who just wanted to go up and fly and get more experience flying. And they didn't have research dollars like they do now. So they went up in ad hoc teams and tried to get photos. And they did. And they realized that there were mothers and calves up and down our coast. And they realized in that moment, because they were seeing that these were newborn calves, oh my gosh, this is where they're coming to have their babies. And so basically between um, the south end of South Carolina through the north tip of Florida um, and Georgia being right in the dead center, um, that is the calving corridor and has it's been recognized as such since the 80s. And that is, you know, things will shift through time due to climate. Um, But what's happening here in Georgia is people are fired up. They're upset because uh, we're losing whales. We're, we're down to approximately 360 of these whales left in the ocean. Um, there's serious concerns for the recovery of the species, and they're facing giant challenges. Those two giant challenges are collisions with ships, with vessels, so they get struck by vessels and killed. Um, And the other piece of that is entanglement in the fishing gear, you know, like the lobster gear in the, in the Northeast. Um, And those two things are very hard to manage because it pits wildlife, nature, the whale against industry. And so it's a very hard, um, it's a very hard fight and, and struggle, but in Georgia, more people now than when I when I learned about North Atlantic right whales a decade ago, more people than ever are aware that the whales are come here in the winter. People actually get together at the start of North Atlantic right whale season and do events to raise awareness for it. Classrooms now do projects. Oh, lovely. So why did Paulita, the ocean activist, join the board of Arts Southeast? Ah. Easy. I love art. (laughs) I love art. I can't get enough of it. Um, I actually owned art galleries years ago in another life. I, um, in Miami and Atlanta, I had art spaces and, um, and I've always been a supporter of the arts, especially emerging arts. Um, and art Southeast is actually the location of the very first whale week before the podcast ends i'd like to ask you to offer three key things that concern you about the state of the ocean and speak to what people can do to make a positive difference 
Absolutely. Three key things about the state of the ocean. First, plastic pollution. It's it's the, the amount and rate of single-use plastics being produced and making their way into our oceans is devastating. It's basically equivalent to two dump trucks a minute pulling up to the ocean and dumping into the ocean. What we can do is we can hold government accountable. We, don't need, we need alternatives to single-use plastics. The people producing these plastics should be held accountable. It's their waste. And our government is the one that can do that. So we really need to encourage and push our government to do more to reduce the amount of single-use plastics being produced. The other piece is that, um, you know, we really need to think about endangered species like the North Atlantic right whale. And, of course, always balance the concerns of industry with conservation uh, but we really, we really do need to listen to the conservation voices more because we have for a long time be, been driven by industry. And that's because we always attach jobs and, and money to that. But there are certain things like endangered species, like the North Atlantic right whale, that we'll never get back again if we lose them. Um, and that is devastating. So we really need to be I think, more in touch with how dire situations are. And again, hold our government accountable and hold industry accountable. They're, they're the economies of scale that have these gigantic national and global impacts on these things. We, can, we as individuals, can also make smart choices, right? Of course, we can choose to use reusable water bottles. We can choose to recycle. However, the... Those, we are not a system of scale. We're an individual. So we can take, we can do our own little actions every day. But it's, um, it's unfair to put that pressure on people when we're talking about shifting such gigantic systems, right? And the third piece of this is, you know, we need to have responsible fishing. Uh, we need to protect things like the Magnuson-Stevens Act and um, that's a that's our federal policy structure for how we manage fisheries. We need to pay attention to what we're doing to our fisheries because our fisheries, they are the community under the water, our fish, right? And how we impact fish and ecosystems and everything um, can be can be either wonderful and bountiful or it can be depleted and catastrophic. So I say that pay attention to fisheries trends, pay attention to the to the seafood that you eat, right? Learn about being in touch with the things that you are a consumer of, but also hold the government accountable. That's what they're there for. They're there to serve us and they want to do their job. And there's some really great people in government that we need to just support them and, and make sure that they can get good work accomplished. Paulita, thank you. I, I found it fascinating to talk to you. I appreciate that you found the time to be on the Women Mind the Water podcast. It has been a pleasure to meet a water woman with such insight. I'd like to remind listeners that I've been speaking with Paulina Bennett-Martin for the Women Mind the Water podcast series. The series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on the Women Mind the Water website, on iTunes and other sites such as Spotify and Stitcher. 
Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for the song Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olson. This is Pam Ferris Olson.